This is Molly Gamble, Vice President of Editorial for Becker's Healthcare and Editor-in-Chief at Becker's Hospital Review. Today for the Becker's Women's Leadership Podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Robin Ely. Robin is the Diane Dorgie Wilson Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. She conducts research on race and gender relations in organizations with a focus on leadership, identity, and organizational culture change. Some of Robin's past research includes studies of men and masculinity on offshore oil platforms, the impact of racial diversity on retail bank performance, and how organizational narratives about gender, work, and family limit both men's and women's ability to thrive personally and professionally. Much of my discussion with Robin today centers around her latest findings on women's advancement. The article, titled What's Really Holding Women Back, ran in the March-April issue of Harvard Business Review. Robin, thank you very much for being my guest today. Well, thanks for having me. So, Robin, your work fascinates me for many reasons, one of them being that you really challenge beliefs that both women and men uphold as true in their working lives. And one of those is the work-family narrative. Can you tell listeners what that is? Yeah, so um, the work-family narrative is, um, is go- goes something like this. Um, it's this idea uh, that high-level jobs require extremely long hours, um, that women's devotion to family makes it impossible for them to put in those hours, and their careers suffer as a result. So it's, it's always got these components about the requirement for long hours, women's natural devotion to family, and, um, and their inability to be successful because of that requirement. They, they can't, because of the long hours requirement and their, their family pulls, they're not able to actually be um, to advance uh, as, 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 as they might otherwise. And, and in healthcare, women make up 75% of the full-time year-round healthcare workforce. I'm curious if the gender makeup of an organization influences the likelihood of that organization or its leaders accepting and endorsing that narrative. Well, basically what we've found um, in our research, and and, and others find this as well, um, is that uh, men and women are equally likely to endorse that narrative, to believe that. So it's very it's a very widespread belief, um, and in fact, uh, in a survey that we did in 2012 of HBS alumni, um, so we had about 6,500 uh, responses, and we asked, um, we gave we gave respondents um, in the, in the survey 14 different um, reasons that they might think. Uh, you know, have held women back or, or are responsible for their stalled advancement in the workplace. And one of them was um, that women prioritize family over work. And what we found is that that was the highest cited reason by both women and men. So 73% of the men uh, said, yes, that's a, that, that's a reason. And um, 85% of women so, um, so it seems to be, you know, there's, there's no sex difference in terms of, of people sort of um, using this narrative to understand women's stalled advancement. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I want to touch on later, it is so, that, that finding illustrates how widespread it is with 85% of women even believing in a narrative that upholds the stalling of their own advancement or possibly derailing of their careers. Um, and I want to I want to get your thoughts on how you would address that with colleagues or friends in in a little bit. But 
I want to revert back to this, what's really holding women back, the article that's based mm -hmm. on your research in a highly competitive consulting firm. And your research ultimately concludes that a culture of overwork combined with the belief in the work family narrative is what leads to a culture where women and not men are encouraged to take accommodations like going part-time, which stalls their advancement. Mm -hmm. And going part-time is one example of what you call push factors. Can you describe what a, a push mm -hmm. factor is and then share some other examples of push factors? Yeah, so um, so basically what we found in our study, and again, it's, it's consistent with uh, what we see in, in lots of organizations, is, um, is that there's this whole, uh, I mean, this is why women tend to believe the narrative as, as much as men do. It's very... Um, you know, the whole culture is reinforcing this narrative. So it's, it's actually very hard to resist. Um, and so one, and one piece of it that's coming from the broader culture and from our families is, you know, that women, in order to be a good mother, you really need to be attentive, you know, more attentive to your children than, you know, working a, you know, a high powered full-time job would allow you to you know, would, would allow you to do. And so, um, and so when the going gets tough, which it does for everybody in these, you know, high, uh, you know, 24 seven kind of overwork cultures, um, when the going gets tough for, um, what happens, in, you know, in, for men and women, but what happens for women is, um, you know, they're offered accommodations. It's like, it's a kind of an automatic thing, like, oh, we understand um, that, uh, you know, you've, you've got these, um, this pull to your family, you've just had a child, maybe you've had your second child, it's really hard for you, you know, you should maybe go part-time. And there's this kind of implicit message that if you don't go part-time, if you stay in, in this difficult situation, that, you're, that your kids are going to suffer and, and that you're not a good mother. Um, and so, uh, so, so we say, you know, one of the, in order to kind of create a system that reinforces or that provides, if you will, evidence for the work family narrative, women need to leave the workforce, right? That's the, the work family narrative is saying they really can't do it. And so, um, and so that's why we call the accommodations kind of a push factor that leads women to behave in ways that are consistent with and would reinforce um, the work family narrative. So that's one push factor. Um, another push factor that we found in our firm is uh, an, another narrative that is um, telling women that um, that basically, as women, they don't really have what it takes to be successful in these sort of high-powered, um, you know, uh, very aggressive kinds of uh, work like like consulting. So, um, so what we heard women say is that you know, that they've been basically told that, first of all, you need to have a really hard-charging masculine style. That's what the firm really venerates in terms of the style of interacting with clients and getting business. And, and women were more likely to say that they felt like they had a more relational style. Whether they actually have a more relational style is another question. There's not a whole lot of evidence for that. But, um, but again, it's a, it, it, this is a narrative that, that people really buy into. And, and what's important about that is that they, they get this message that, that the way that they're supposed to be in order to be superstars in, in the organization, in the firm, um, is, is counter to what they feel is their, you know, what they're like. And so that's mm -hmm. another push factor. It's like, well, you know, you don't really have what it takes to be here. So, you know, if you're sort of thinking, um, gee, 
maybe I'm sacrificing something on behalf of my, my kids by doing this job. And, and I'm actually kind of getting this message. I'm not very good at it. That's, that's kind of another push factor that leads women to ratchet back or even to leave altogether. And then the third push factor is, is this um, reputation that we heard, you know, over and over again from men and women alike, um, the reputation of women partners who had children. By the way, most of the women partners in this firm did have children, um, at which you could take as evidence, oh, you, you can be a mother and, and be successful here. Um, they would be evidence of that. Uh, but, um, but instead what happened is that you know, the, these women were, were roundly criticized as bad mothers. So basically, you have a choice. If you want to stay in this firm and be successful as a woman, um, you're going to sacrifice something uh, that's, that's probably very important to you, as it is to all people, is to you know, be good parents. That's something that, that everybody aspires to, I think. Um, so, so it's very hard. This is what women have to kind of withstand in order to stay in the workplace. Mm-hmm. A lot of difficult decisions, a lot of either or, as you just illustrated. And like you said, it's interesting that the firm didn't uphold those women who had achieved partner status or higher status, who had children as examples of what could be accomplished if you have a family, versus instead they mm-hmm. framed them as, as bad mothers. Right. You know, and, and another in, interesting observation you include in your article, and I thought this deserved just a couple more minutes of reflection on your part. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, but that's how women without children in the study had promotion mm-hmm. records no better than those of mothers. Can you talk about that a bit? Right. So, again, I mean, if, if, if we were to take the work family narrative at face value, if we were to actually look at the evidence to see whether this is, in fact, the, the, you know, true, that this is what's holding uh, women back, we would expect to see... Um, that uh, women without children should be able to be successful. I mean, what would be holding them back if the main thing holding women back is having children? Um, but we didn't find, you know, really nowhere in the, the kind of narrative of the, of the firm. Um, so we spent a lot of time interviewing people in the firm, um, consultants primarily, and asking them, you know, what, what, what do you think is holding women back? And you know, we got this, this work family narrative, but we didn't hear anybody talk about, you know, if you didn't have, however, if you didn't have children, that, that would be fine. And, that, and I think the reason for that is that the, um, what's, what's kind of emotionally important, if you will, in, in these cultures is that people have hold this belief about who women and men are and that they are fundamentally different. And so any, um, evidence to the contrary needs to just be ignored or, or negated. And so we heard time and again, um, you know, people uh, just, just failing to recognize that, 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 that there was actually some diversity among the women in terms of how they were living their lives and what they were doing. It was just this blanket, no, they can't be successful. And by the way, if they are, they're bad mothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a woman without children might as well be seen as a mother. Yeah, exactly. Because if you don't have a child now, if you're a young woman, um, even if you aren't partnered or, you know, have never expressed any interest in having children, the idea is, but you might be, you might become a a mother someday. So, um, you know, this is a a, a little bit of the, um, 
It's, a, it's kind of a version of the Sheryl Sandberg, women leaving before they leave. Like they don't even have children yet, and they're already anticipating, oh, I'm not going to be able to make it here because I want to have children, you know, as mm-hmm. opposed to investing in their careers. Um, and, uh, you know, and then figuring it out once they do have children, which, by the way, is hard to do because firms are, you know, not helping them. They're giving them accommodations, right. which, you know, I think they believe is, is going to help them, but it, it doesn't. And, that's, and again, the data show that. Um, that typically women who um, who go part time or in in uh, you know professional services, if they go to internal facing roles, which is another thing that they do in order to you know limit the number of hours that they're working, um, they're 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 just less likely to um, to be successful. They're less likely to make partner and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know we've talked a lot about how this this dynamic affects women, but this really isn't good for men either. And although women might pay a higher professional price with this narrative and in the culture of overwork, men are also confined to a really small box and they're expected to show up as the ideal worker, as you call it, and suppress a lot of their own emotional experiences of family and of parenting. Can you talk about some of the dynamic side effects for men? Yeah, um, because alongside, this is what's so fascinating and fascinated us about the, the, um, the study of this firm is that right alongside the work family narrative, we have um, many interviews with men who, while they will talk, they will say that the, the reason women don't advance um, is because of their pull to family uh, and you know, therefore can't work the hours. At the same time, they will tell us, you know, told us many stories of their own pull to families and the difficulty that they had uh, balancing work and family. And, um, and in some ways, you know, just across the board, if we look at who's experiencing more conflict um, in, in, in terms of, you know, work-family work conflict, feeling pulled in both directions and not feeling really able to manage very well, it's the men um, because you know, they, they also are, they also are prioritizing family over work. Everybody prioritizes family over work. It's just that what that's supposed to look like for men is that they are, they're supposed to ratchet up at work and be the breadwinner. That's how they prioritize family over work. But the problem is that they have emotional pulls to their families, to their, you know, their partners, their children, um, their communities, their friends. And, um, but that, that there's no kind of place for that in the, you know, this, this kind of ideal worker, yet another narrative that, um, you know, pervades the many workplaces uh, that to, to be successful, you really need to be 100% committed and 100% available. Um, but, but that's just not how people, that's just not how human beings work. You know, I mean, Freud said famously that, um, that, that, um, you know, love and work are the cornerstones to our humanness. And that's, that's to our humanness. That's not just to women, that's to men as well. Mm-hmm. So we heard a lot of pain from the men. And, and one interesting dynamic too is that, and I think it's important that um, listeners who are women um, just be able to recognize this moving forward. But there was one example in, in the article about a man who talked about feeling really, really connected chemically to his newborn child <laughs> and then basically walked back his comments and framed them as, well, now I understand that that's only, um, a, you know, a tenth of what a mother must feel and basically minimized his own experience and framed it in relation to a woman and pr- kind of projecting. Can you, 
Can you share a little bit about that? Because yeah. I, I've had that happen to myself personally, and I'm just curious yeah. so we can have better conversations as men and women in the, in the workplace moving forward, if there's um, more that women can be aware of when that happens. Yeah, so we we describe this as a kind of key psychological tactic that we saw men doing to manage those emotions I was just talking about. Um, so what we think is happening is that they're basically splitting off the guilt and sadness that they feel about having, uh, you know, basically sacrificing connections to their family. And they project those feelings onto women. And then women take them in and enact them because that's their role, right? That's, that's what they're supposed to do. They're the ones who are supposed to have these feelings. So they express those feelings. And then men are able to identify with them um, but kind of at a bit of a remove. And this was really this, this, this uh, man you're talking about that we interviewed. It was his um, response to our question about, you know, what do you think is holding women back in the firm? That was really the linchpin to our, our whole analysis. Um, so he, um, you know, he, he, he's, uh, he says, well, you know, I, you know, I believe deeply in my heart and soul that, you know, women encounter different challenges. And he talks about society being, you know, partly uh, colluding in that um, women take extended maternity leaves and there's biological, you know, biological imperatives for women. You know, this is why they, they need to take maternity leave. They're committed to their, their children. Um, and then he goes on right from there without even skipping a beat. He says, you know, when he's, when my first child was born, I, 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 you know, I, I held her in the delivery room and he talks about these, he felt like these chemicals release were releasing in his, in his brain. He talks about, you know, like feeling chemically falling in love with her. It was so, it was so touching and, you know, he couldn't imagine a world without her. And, you know, God, it was just in the first eight minutes of her life. And he says, you know, I, I don't, so I can understand how it's hard for women. He's describing his own, his own experience so poignantly. And even with this kind of almost biological chemical aspect, like it's automatic for him. And yet, you know, he says, how can I, he says, how, how can I possibly give this up and go back to work? But he does, he goes back to work. He doesn't take a paternity mm -hmm. leave. Um, you know, he goes right back to work and he's not happy about it, by the way. But his, his fundamental narrative about why women aren't advancing is because women have this experience. And so I think that what we can do for men is to recognize that they are actually having the experience too. Um, and to, uh, you know, to encourage that kind of discussion from them to, to really inquire, not assume that once they've had a child that, you know, if they've got a, a spouse at home taking care of the child, um, that, that they have no feelings about that. Um, you know, I think it's, it, these, this is the kind of discussion that it just doesn't happen in organizations. There's not permission for men to talk about their feelings really about much of anything, but certainly not about mm -hmm. family. So I mm -hmm. think that is, I think that is one, uh, you know, one, one thing we can do. Absolutely. So I'm, you know, I, I mentioned this before, but given how widespread the belief in the family narrative is, you mentioned statistics from the Harvard Business School alumni with 85% of women believing in it. Was it 75% of men? Uh, let's see. Yeah, 73% of men, 85% of women. Okay. 
it struck me in reading it, and, and I think it's, I, have, I would have the reaction of, well, no, of course I don't believe that. But the more I read about it, and based on those numbers, you have some highly educated people. It crosses gender boundaries. Um, I'm curious if you were to find yourself in a gathering and conversing with friends or colleagues, and a lot of our listeners are either leaders currently or aspiring leaders in the organization. Uh, I'm curious if, if you heard someone make a remark based on the assumption that high-level jobs require long hours and women's devotion to family makes it impossible for them to put in those hours. How, Robin, would you respond to them? <laughs> um, well, you know, there's two pieces to that, right? We've been talking mostly about the part of the narrative that, um, you know, that, that describes women as, uh, you know, sort of fundamentally uh, family-devoted and, and, and not work-oriented. Um, but the other piece is, is, the, uh, is the long hours piece. And that's, that's another thing that we found in the firm. And we see this, I see this time and again, um, this very strong belief that, um, that you need to, um, that you, that you actually need to be available 24 seven and that the company needs you to be available 24 seven in order to be able to, um, be competitive. And so what I will often do is just ask people, um, oh, it's, it's interesting, the assumption that, you know, that all these, all these long work hours, um, and I just say, you know, do uh, do you think you waste much time at work? I mean, how much time do you think you waste at work? And then people get into, oh, my God, so much time gets wasted. <laughs> I mean, again, it's like their experience is counter to the narrative, but they still mm-hmm. insist on the narrative, even alongside their own experience that runs counter to it. So we heard this in our firm. You know, people were saying, like, these, these long hours are actually not really necessary. I mean, you know, we got partners who are – they're overselling. They're, you know, they're not charging enough for the work. Um, and, uh, and we spend all this time perfecting our, you know, slide decks and clients don't need it. Um, so, so I think, you know, I think that's the, that's the first piece is to really ask people to reflect on whether all the hours that they put in are, are productive hours. There's just, we just spin our wheels so much. We spend so much time, um, cleaning up the messes we make because we, you know, we, we don't have the difficult conversations we need to have. We don't plan well. We don't manage well. We're not clear about what we, you know, uh, about the work that we, we want our direct reports to do. I mean, I just see this time and time again. Um, and so I think there's a lot of time wasted. I also think mm-hmm. um, what I've come to see in, in, in studying um, law firms, so this is particularly true in professional services, is there's this belief that the client, uh, oh, well, you know, the client needs you to be available 24-7. And what I've seen is that there are, um, in, you know, there, there are a number of partners, uh, and I'll just say in law firms, so that's where I've been studying this most recently, um, who actually don't kill their teams. They're not overworking their teams. And so I say, well, what are these partners what, you know, why isn't everybody doing what they're doing? What's going on? It's like, oh, they're really amazing at managing the client. And so what Mm -hmm. I think happens is that in professional services, clients have a lot of anxiety um, and they, um, you know, they, they, they go to their lawyer or, you know, you know, whoever the, the, the service provider is and, and, and it makes the, they, they kind of pass that anxiety on 
So partners get anxious and then they scramble and then they pass that on to their teams and then they're scrambling. And so then these teams, you know, end up working, you know, all night and over the weekend when, when really if the partner were able to manage the client's anxiety and saw that as his or her job, like, look, you don't really, okay, I see you've got a problem here. We're going to deal with it on Monday. It's fine. You're going to be totally Mm -hmm. fine. Sometimes they aren't. Sometimes you need to scramble. I'm not saying this is true hundred percent of the time, but I do think that more often than not the, this, 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 um, overwork is, is sort of, um, it's it's not really about uh, it's not really about the work. It's about mm-hmm. um, you know proving how smart you are, proving how dedicated you are, proving how tough you are, proving how responsive you are, whatever it might be. Um, and so that's that's one piece. And I think you know in that kind of cocktail party conversation, I, I will say that that often trips people up when you when you say, oh gee, do you think you waste any time? Like wow, yeah, waste a lot of time. So could we work more efficiently? Yes, I think so. So there's that piece. And I think the second piece about, um, you know, about women's family devotion is, um, you know, it's just much more complex than that. And I think, you know, just if I were talking to men, I would, I would sort of ask them about their experience of parenting and what it's like um, if, if they are in that mode of, um, you know, the ideal worker, some version of the ideal worker, or trying to appear to be some version of the ideal worker, you know, what's really underneath that and to try to see if they might be able to connect to their own feelings that are very similar to the kinds of feelings that they're projecting onto women. Mm-hmm. That's so, the, the assumption of whether long hours are needed. I have to say, if I heard someone say the narrative, I wouldn't think to direct my questioning there, but it's so true. Um, this has been so interesting, Robin. I, I am really grateful for you to walk us through many of your findings here and knowing that our listeners are, like I said, either currently leaders right now who manage teams who contain women um, or aspiring to, to grow and climb the ranks. I think a lot of your findings are, are very applicable to them, even though you were in a consulting firm for this study, but there's a lot of carryovers. Yeah, I, I I will say that I did get a lot of um, if I had to what from what industry did I hear most uh, from people after that HBR article was um, published and it was people in healthcare saying wow this is this is what goes on and it's academic health you know academic medicine as well as um, you know hospitals. Mhm. Mhm. Well, I want to thank you very much for for being my guest today, um, listeners. I, I said earlier, but the article is titled "What's Really Holding Women Back." It ran in the March-April issue of Harvard Business Review. Robin, I look forward to reading more of your work. Um, I know you're up to a lot of different research and projects, so I want to thank you for your time, given how busy you are, and for sharing your thoughts with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.